Hi, everybody. My name is Benjamin Kitchings, and thank you for listening to the History Voyager. I'm here with Leslie. Leslie, why don't you uh, introduce yourself to the world? Hi, I'm Leslie Waters. I'm an assistant professor at the University of Texas at El Paso, and I'm a historian who works on uh, Central and Eastern European history of the 20th century. And in particular, I look at uh, border conflicts and ethnic cleansing. I bet, because that folds in Nazism, right? So I bet there's a lot of uh, lot of that, a lot of history about that. Definitely, yes. Okay. So when we talk about the 20th century, <clears throat> as I put my master's degree hat back on, um, are we talking about the long 20th century, or are we talking about 1900 to 2000? I look at a 10-year period, actually, from 1938 to 1948. Oh, and yes. that's a period where this borderland that I study, which is uh, today the southern Slovakia, that area changed hands multiple times in that 10-year period. And there were also three distinct ethnic cleansing actions that occurred uh, during that 10 year span. So, so yes. my book is about the kind of relationship between those border changes and those ethnic cleansings. Okay. So why don't you set the stage? Uh, first of all, Slovakia is Southeastern Europe. It's a uh, kind of due East of Austria mm-hmm. and West of the Ukraine of Ukraine. Mm-hmm. Um, south of Czech Republic. At the time, it was, of course, Czechoslovakia, and it's uh, north of Hungary. So I guess to set the stage, you kind of have to go back to uh, the end of the First World War and the Treaty of Versailles and the breakup of the Austro-Hungarian Empire. And part of the peace process was the creation of several new states in Central and Eastern Europe and significant territorial losses by the Kingdom of Hungary. And so Slovakia was a part of the Kingdom of Hungary historically, and it became uh, the southern half of Czechoslovakia after World War I. But it had a significant Hungarian minority community, almost a million people, and they nearly all lived contiguous to the uh, border with Hungary. So you have this uh, group of Hungarian minorities living in southern Slovakia, And especially the older generation would prefer to be part of Hungary rather than Czechoslovakia. And so part of the reason for the border change is to make it more uh, more accurate to the the ethnicity and the population patterns of the area. Okay, okay. Um, Okay, so... World War One basically started in that region of the world. Mm-hmm. And then you had sort of this weird between the war period, which, you know, when do you say World War Two uh, started? When do you feel comfortable with saying that? That's a great question. I mean, so... I guess the standard line, right, is September 1st, 1939, the invasion of Poland. But for me, I think 
you know, the cards are all laid out starting in March of 1938 when Germany begins changing borders around. So first you have the annexation of Austria, then you have um, the Munich Agreement and the um, accession of of the Sudetenland to Nazi Germany. And uh, just one month later is when Hungary gets back um, southern Slovakia. So I think that once borders start shifting around in, in Central and Eastern Europe is kind of, I don't want to say inevitability of the war, but it's pretty clear that um, that these sort of population engineering and uh, movement of political boundaries isn't going to stop anytime soon, and that mm. war is likely uh, in order to kind of have this shake out. Yeah, I mean, I, that's why I was asking you, because, I mean, when I was a very young man, well, not even a young man. I was a child. <laughs> um, I interviewed my one of my uncles about what he did in the war, World War Two. Look at me. I called it the war, even though. It, <laughs> look at me. Watch that. Okay. And I asked him, when did World War Two start? And what he said was, I'll never forget it. He said. He's basically just he, he listed a couple of events and he said, well, your history book will tell you the date you gave me. Mm-hmm. But, you know, they were. You know, they were Washington knew about stuff going on in 36 and, you know, 37. There was different things going on in 37. That September 1st, 1939 date is definitely a, like a Eurocentric date. Because if you think about this as a world war and you really take Japan into consideration, you know, you could you could look to the invasion of Manchuria, right, as your beginning date. Uh, or if you were taking seriously uh, Italy and the invasion of mm. Ethiopia, you mm. could, I think that's 35 or 36. So there's a lot of different ways that we could look at this. And um, that September 1st, 1939 date is certainly one that... Um, that privileges, right, a, a, a European perspective, really a British perspective, because that's the date yeah. that, that sort of triggers the British entry into the war. And it's funny because when I was studying the British Empire uh, in college, you know, I was looking at all these cables that the British, basically, I think they called themselves the colonial office still, mm-hmm. uh, was sending itself, essentially sending itself <clears throat> In today's parlance, you would send yourself interoffice emails. Mm-hmm. Well, they were sending themselves interoffice cables, <laughs> mm-hmm. and they were moving chess pieces around for years before that. Yeah, the British Foreign Office files are are really interesting, and they yeah. can tell you about basically any area of the world. I actually used some for the book too, yeah. uh, because they were they were pretty closely monitoring the. I guess, relations between Czechoslovakia and Hungary, especially after World War II, Mm. um, when you have this thing called the Allied Control Commission, which is theoretically like um, somewhat responsible for setting up new governments in Europe. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so they're they're watching things very closely. Um, And so, yeah, the Foreign Office is a real 
a real treasure for for historians, no matter what part of the world they uh, work on. Okay, so let's okay. So getting back to thirty eight to forty eight, mm-hmm. um, talk about so talk about the folks you had you had uh, certainly you had European uh, Jews you had. Uh, I guess do that. Do we call what do we call them? Gypsies or Roma? Uh-huh. Roma. There's the word. Yeah. Uh, Roma. Um, who else? You had Catholics. You had um, Serbs. You had just all these different people, hodgepodge of folks, right? Yeah. In the territory that I uh, focus on, you uh, mostly have Slovak speakers. Hungarian speakers and Roma who have a tendency to be Hungarian speakers and Jews who have a tendency to be Hungarian speakers. Uh, And the Hungarians and Slovaks might be Catholics. They might be Protestants. Um, The dividing line, I guess, really comes with uh, like a a different treatment for Roma and Jews versus other uh, minority groups in the area. So I would say that even though life maybe wasn't good for Slovaks under Hungarian occupation, they definitely didn't have the same level of persecution that Jews and Romas experienced. Okay, so so you're already talking about, I guess, with the Roma and I guess also the 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 Jewish people, you're already talking about a lot of internal migration. Correct. I mean. Yeah, I I suppose both, both internal migration within states and also, uh, you know, Hungary sort of considered a safe haven for Jews. So um, Mm. Jews from the Czech lands, once Germany occupies fully, they, some of them flee to Hungary. Jews from Austria fled to Hungary. Jews from Poland fled to Hungary. And in general, Hungary was a relatively safe space for Jews until 1944. And I say relatively because the Hungarian government passed all kinds of anti-Semitic laws, uh, but they stopped short, generally speaking, of deporting people until Germany occupied Hungary in March of 1944. Yeah. And one of the things I I learned, um, both because I... Um, working with a local Jewish museum in town and also in college was the Nazis, when they showed up, they would heavily lean on the local folks, the local people, to point out who the Jewish people were Um, also. So there was sort of always this level of anti-Semitism that was kind of ambient. Yeah, I, you know, it, there is a lot of um, heterogeneity, I guess, in terms of like how different states responded to Jewish persecution in Europe in this era. Mm-hmm. Again, Hungary is kind of a, a bit of an outlier in that Jews were quite assimilated in Hungary and generally saw themselves as part of the Hungarian nation. Uh, they were usually Hungarian speakers. And uh, they had really supported the Hungarian government from like the 1870s onward. But the Jews who live in this borderland region are in a bit of um, a unique situation because when the border, when 
this area becomes part of Czechoslovakia in 1918, they uh, strategically decide to support the Czechoslovak government, more or less, while maintaining a cultural identity of Hungarianness. Um, but this leads to all kinds of accusations of disloyalty. And you can find New York Times articles from this era in which they, you know, the reporters on the ground are pretty explicit in that the uh, Jewish population really is in between a rock and a hard place because uh, everyone is sort of accusing them of disloyalty and everyone is uh, seeing them as, as part of uh, facilitating the the rise, I suppose, of, of whatever rival group. So Slovaks think that Jews are too Hungarian. Hungarians think that Jews are too Czech and so on and so forth. Yeah. And so this was a relative safe space, but you said you talked about uh, anti-Semitic uh, laws that Hungary passed. What, what are some examples of some of those uh, laws? So Hungary is sort of noteworthy, actually, for passing one of the first pieces of anti-Jewish legislation in Europe. Um, it was called the Numerous Clauses, and it was passed in the 1920s. It limited the number of Jews who could attend universities. Uh, but then a new round of anti-Semitic legislation is passed starting in 1938, and most of it is designed to limit Jewish... Uh, control, control is not the right word, but Jewish presence in, in certain, uh, in certain fields and certain businesses. Mm. So they target uh, journalism, they target uh, sort of cultural arts, engineering, medicine, and they basically put a pretty hard cap on the number of Jews who are allowed to practice in these fields. And it's a real problem for the borderland region, in particular, uh, with regards to limiting the number of Jewish doctors. Uh, for various historical reasons, the majority of the doctors who practiced in that area were Jewish. Mm -hmm. And um, by severely limiting the number of Jews who are allowed to practice medicine, they actually uh, led, it led to the possibility of a public health crisis because there weren't enough doctors to go around essentially. And there's this like, um, you know, this limiting of, of people who are trained and have good reputations in the community and have clients and, you know, have been helping their patients for decades. And then they're basically told they can't practice anymore. And yeah. the region is totally depleted of doctors. I'm going to throw out a, question and it's okay for you to say you don't know okay um when i so this podcast started out its life as a deep dive into the spanish flu mm. and what i learned through reading up on the spanish flu was you know the uh, the notion of virology or I don't even know what you want to call it, but the because this isn't virology exactly. It's the idea that you and I are susceptible to the same diseases, right? Mm -hmm. So that idea itself was a new idea 
that didn't even exist in a lot of places in 1918. Okay. Mm-hmm. You know, that was something that, that wasn't really around. So you had people like when the Russian, when the so-called Russian flu hit, okay, you had folks all over Europe who thought, well, only certain people can get that. Right. Mm-hmm. So like they would have thought whatever group they didn't like, right. They would have thought, well, only they can get that. Right. So I'm wondering if some of this was some twisted version of public health in itself, like, cause a lot of people in Europe thought, well, only Jewish people can get this certain disease or, or that certain disease or whatever. Yeah, I have to, in this particular instance, I think it's about expropriation of, of various businesses, like whether or not it's a medical yeah. practice, uh, because, I, you know, I see a lot of parallels in other fields, too. I mean, one of the most destructive things that the Hungarian government did was uh, revoke business licenses. And mm-hmm. so, you know, your local greengrocer can't, can't sell you uh flour anymore or what have you. Uh, and the idea was that those business licenses would be redistributed to Christian Hungarians. And so I think in this case, it really is about um, trying to expropriate Jewish wealth and Jewish status and redistribute it to uh, to people who will be loyal to the Hungarian government. Yeah, right. who have a tendency to be Hungarian Christians. Now, when you when you talk about this idea of, of virology and kind of ethnic discrimination, there's definitely evidence for that in kind of other mm-hmm. moments. Uh, so there's been some really great work by a historian named Victoria Schmidt about Czechoslovakia and um, public health policies. Mm-hmm. And they and basically which you know, one of the things she finds is that Roma and Jews are considered disease vectors, right? That they, that they're, um, mm-hmm. that they're spreading diseases to, uh, to cities and, uh, that mm-hmm. curbing their ability to move either like migrate internationally or even like move in internally within the country is seen as a way of kind of limiting outbreaks of things like typhus. Mm-hmm. Uh, but there's there's certainly like this ethnicized angle to it and this idea of of yeah carriers of disease migrants as carriers of disease roma as carriers of disease jews as carriers of disease mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. so but it, you, from your judgment it was mainly about uh either expropriation or redistribution of wealth to to more christian hungarian who they were perceived of as loyal Yeah. So there's this idea that in, let's say, um, disputed territories, one of the major strategies that that states employ is to establish ethnic dominance. And in order to establish ethnic dominance, it means that, you know, the members of your of your nation, your ethnicity should have uh, as many positions as possible in in economics, in governance. And so the idea is to like build up a ethnically Hungarian middle class and ruling class in order to establish ethnic dominance over this um, ethnically mixed borderland region. Mm -hmm. The Czechoslovak government does something similar as well. 
both prior to um, 1938 and then again after World War II, there's a major um, population exchange that occurs between Hungarian speakers from southern Slovakia and Slovak speakers who live in various parts of Hungary. And the idea, again, is to try and create a ethnic dominance over this space uh, where Slavic speakers, in this case, uh, have all the positions of power and like sort of definitively control public spaces. Mm. Okay. Um, and so that was a goal of the Hungarians over and above what the Nazis were doing. Um, so when you say Hungary was a safe space, in what way was it a safe space compared to, say, other places like Austria or, you know? Yeah, so, you know, there's, um, when you're looking at deportations during the Holocaust, there's like several different categories that you, like, geopolitical categories that you would need to consider. Like the first one is places that are directly occupied by Germany, right? And in those places, there's really no impediment whatsoever to uh, deportations of Jews. And in fact, it's the explicit goal of, of the regime. They rely on local actors to help, um, but they're in control. They're in complete control of the government in those spaces. So that would include Austria. That would include the Czech lands. Uh, but then there are these places that are nominally independent, but heavily influenced by Germany, right? These allied states. So that's the case for both Slovakia, which declared its independence in 1939, and, um, and Hungary. So they're heavily, heavily influenced by uh, the German government, but they are still nominally independent and they can, they have the ability to um, influence their internal Jewish policies. Now, uh, the difference between these two countries is that Slovakia sort of voluntarily deports its Jewish population in 1942, shortly after the final solution is kind of conceptualized, right? So this idea of targeting the Jews of Europe in total. So, um, so Slovakia is already uh, a place where you're in danger of being deported to uh, German-occupied Poland as of 1942. Hungary, I, you know, and I don't think it's out of the goodness of their own hearts or anything like that, but Hungary does not deport its Jewish population apart from um, an action that happened in, in 1941 that was kind of limited to allegedly limited to foreign Jews, but in terms of like overall strategies for deporting the Jewish population, that doesn't occur until Germany occupied Hungary in 1944. So it's really the last major population center of Jews to be deported. And it's, you know, like a particular tragedy among tragedies in the Holocaust and that, you know, this population of Jews, somewhere between 800 and 900,000 Jews in the state at the time is liquidated incredibly quickly, like within a matter of six weeks. Uh, most, the majority of the Jews who live in the countryside are deported to Auschwitz. Mm -hmm. And um, really, it's only Budapest that that uh, is able to kind of evade deportations. Okay, I didn't know that. Why? <laughs> well, um, 
it's it's a little bit complicated <laughs> as these things tend to be but um you know there's international pressure everybody knows what's happening as of 1944 right yeah. uh and the hungarian Hungary is occupied by Germany, but they still, again, they have their own government and various international actors, including Franklin Roosevelt and uh, the King of Sweden, put pressure on the regent of Hungary to end deportations. And he does uh, sort of in an attempt to save face. Uh, he's eventually ousted as well. And then um, there are there is like sort of another round of terror against the Jewish population by the kind of uh, indigenous Hungarian fascist party called the Arrow Cross. Uh, but any sort of wide scale deportations from the city of Budapest, they just they never occurred, um, despite the desires of the German government. And I think there are these broader geopolitical reasons why. I think also we've talked around something about World War II that I think we should perhaps address explicitly. And that is that at, at a certain point during the war, okay, it went from being nobody knew who was going to win, like nobody really knew what was going to happen, to this sort of, you could sort of see it. You could kind of see the Allied victory in the future. Mm -hmm. um, and during that point, from my own research, is when a lot of the uh, Jewish liquidations and exterminations uh, really accelerated. Um, but when was that exactly? Do you, do you, would you be able to put a ballpark on it? So, you know... The origins of the final solution, like the, the date in which the, the decision is made is one that's like pretty highly disputed by historians. But generally, we can talk about some sort of shift towards exterminating entire Jewish communities occurring in the latter half of 1941. So after the invasion of the Soviet Union, still in this moment where German victory appears likely because of mm. how quickly they're able to overrun the Soviet, the East, the European part of the Soviet Union. Mm -hmm. um, but it really starts to pick up and be like, let's say, institutionalized or like like more broadly strategized in the beginning of 1942. And the the sort of moment of greatest destruction is probably the year 1942 up until early 1943. And that's when the Germans can, the Germans liquidate the uh, Jewish community of Poland, the largest Jewish community in, in Europe, mm. uh, and also a large percentage of the Jews who lived in the European part of the Soviet Union. Um, and that's, mm. they more or less succeed in in liquidating the Jewish communities that are directly under their control by 1943, by early 1943. Mm -hmm. Then you've got the question of the Jews of Western Europe, which I'm less familiar with, but, um, mm -hmm. you know, efforts to deport Jews from places like the Netherlands and uh, France, that's going on 
also, I believe, 1942, 1943. By the time Hungary is involved, it's more than clear that Germany is going to lose the war. Mm. In fact, the Soviet Red Army is basically at the border of Hungary Mm. when this all starts to happen, when when these deportations uh, begin to occur. And it's and that's why that six week period is so catastrophic, because it really is a matter of, you know, if they can delay Mm -hmm. just a few more weeks, then the Red Army will be there essentially. uh, Mm -hmm. And and they're not really able to do it or they don't desire to do it. But it also Mm -hmm. says something about the Hungarian government that they're willing to do this in the case in in the face of clear defeat right like if there was ever a moment to um to change your policy and to move away from anti-semitic actions and maybe you know as an ally of germany you could still perhaps save your international reputation if you uh if you prevent the deportation of the Jewish population, but they choose not to do it. They see too many um, incentives, right? Like there's, it's quite obvious that expropriating Jewish wealth is, um, is a major strategic goal for the Hungarian government. And the reason why they're eager to participate in deportations uh, in 1944. Mm. Yeah. Um, okay. Let's let's back up a minute. Um, talk about the border, as you called it, the borderlands. Um, was it a populated sort of situation, or was it sort of a a rural situation, or what was going on there? Yeah, it's a it's a kind of a narrow strip of territory. Mm-hmm. In southern Slovakia, it is mostly rural, but it, it, the largest city that it includes is uh, is the city of Košice, which is the uh, second largest city in, in Slovakia today, and um, by far the largest city in eastern Czechoslovakia at the time. Um, so it is overwhelmingly rural, but apart from... Um, Apart from Bratislava, Hungary does get back all of the major Slovak uh, cities, mm-hmm. and uh, it's it's good farmland. It's uh, it's fertile. It's a fertile area. It um, it is not heavily industrialized at all, apart I suppose from Košice. Um, like I said, it, it, it's around eighty percent Hungarian speakers. So um, generally, I would say the population was supportive of returning to Hungary in 1938, though obviously not everyone. And um, one of the first things that happens is that the Hungarian government decides to target people who've moved to that area over the past 20 years. So anyone who um, was from other areas of Czechoslovakia who migrated into Southern Slovakia, uh, they were targeted for removal. And Mm. um, there had been these land reform programs that had happened in the 1920s that were meant to um, take 
the large aristocratic land holdings from uh, from Hungarian aristocrats and redistribute them to uh, Slovak and Czech speakers. And, uh, and those people are targeted for removal. A lot of them flee, mm-hmm. um, but the Hungarian government also expels um, several thousand. It's, it's basically impossible to come up with a number, um, but it is a, a, a targeted uh, ethnic cleansing that happens in that borderland in mm-hmm. late 1938 to try and cleanse people who moved into the territory under Czechoslovak rule. So, um, what was the diaspora, was there a diaspora, a Hungarian or a Czech and a Slovak diaspora throughout the world in, from 38 to 48 or? So I think the largest populations would have been in the United States mm-hmm. and they are the descendants of people who immigrated in the late 19th century. Um, and, you know, the Czech and Slovak Americans were instrumental in setting up the, um, Czechoslovak state. In fact, the sort of declaration of independence for Slovakia, it's not exactly a declaration of independence, but sort of the, the document that, that, that makes explicit that this, that they're going to try and create this state is signed in Pittsburgh. And mm-hmm. the diaspora communities are, are yeah. heavily, heavily involved in it. Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, I didn't find a ton of evidence that the diaspora communities are, are playing a role in these border changes in, in my period. But, you know, certainly there's attempts to, like, push some sort of ethnic solidarity by this new Slovak state that's formed in 1939. And they actually have these, I would say, fantasies of um, of bringing Slovak Americans back to Slovakia to repopulate the state and create like so uh, ethnically cleanse all non-Slovaks, all Jews, all Hungarians, all Roma, and replace them with Slovak Americans. Uh, there is, of course, no evidence that there's any sort of will among Slovak Americans to participate in this uh, in this mm-hmm. endeavor. But nevertheless, the government does have these fantasies about creating kind of like an ethnically pure Slovakia. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, and you, I mean, I talked to a young man from that general part of the world uh, recently, and it's up there on the internet, and. Mm-hmm. The reason I wanted to talk to you was because I wanted to historically ground some of what he was talking about. Like, mm-hmm. he, I don't think we captured it in the actual recording, but off air, he talked the day before, he had talked a lot about what was actually happening that he could look out of his door and see. Mm-hmm. And it just sort of was shocking. I mean, I, I don't know why I should be shocked, but, you know, imagine laying your head down at night and thinking, tomorrow I could be at war. Like, literally. Like, actually thinking that. <laughs> you know? I don't know. Just sort of amazing. 
Yeah, I mean, in terms of what's going on at this moment in time, I would say that Ukraine is the hotspot for sure, Eastern mm-hmm. Ukraine. Um, and and now, as of last week, Kazakhstan seems to be a hotspot as well. The situation, yeah. you know, further west in, in Slovakia and Hungary today is, you know, it's pretty stable. They're both members of the European Union. Um, you know, Hungary's kind of, I mean, it's got this authoritarian government and uh, a prime minister who really like flaunts any kind of European Union imposed values, let's say. Um, but, you know, they reap the benefits of being in the union still. And, um, mm. and yeah, they, yeah. there's been a lot of economic growth in the area because of uh, European structural funds that because have been of EU membership and yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Like the U S and I guess Western Europe really take the EU and, you know, yeah, actually today this, this, the city, the largest city that, uh, I work on Košice. Actually, the largest employer is U.S. Steel. They own the steel mill in Košice, which mm. is, uh, you know, a, a steel mill that was set up in the, I think, in the 1950s. You know, as part of the kind of Stalinist industrialization drives. And actually, you know, in part, part of the reason why it was set up there was to bring in um, more Slovaks and and kind of uh, dilute the Hungarian population of the city. Anyway, uh, that steel mill was bought by U.S. Steel in the 1990s. I believe it is a, a net loss for the company, and they would very much not, you know, desire to get rid of it if they could. But it's actually a point of, like, um, I guess, diplomatic engagement between the United States and Slovakia that U.S. Mm. Steel maintained this mill because it is by far the largest employer in all of eastern Slovakia. Wow. It's amazing, all these little jigsaw pieces. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I'm going to switch gears for just a second. Um, how, what is it like teaching about what you teach about uh, to, to college students these days? Um, do, do you find college students that don't know about the Holocaust, things like that, or...? I think that most people have a vague sense of what the Holocaust was, although it's, you know, it can very easily be, um, I mean, it's pretty boilerplate and you can complicate things for them uh, relatively easily. And I, I think they find it fascinating. What I really like about the situation I'm currently in is teaching about borderlands in a borderland, right? So I live in El Paso on the US-Mexico border. And just the fact that there are other kinds of border disputes in, in other parts of the world, you know, they manifest quite quite differently, obviously, here. But still, you find parallels. Um, so one of the things I wrote about in my book was this idea of the borderlands as kind of an experimental space. Uh, and that oftentimes, the Hungarian and Czechoslovak government would would test out like surveillance policies or um, 
acts of physical violence against population and kind of see how it played out in the borderlands before implementing it more widely in other parts of the state. And something similar happens down here. So I don't know, you drive, you drive around the city and you can see Customs and Border Patrol with the latest technology and, um, you know, in terms of, uh, of surveillance uh, mechanisms. And you might not see that in other parts of the U.S. for five or six more years, but you can kind of, I think you can take an educated guess that if they deem it successful, if they think it's a good technology, then they'll deploy it elsewhere too. Um, when the ICE raids started in large American cities, you know, three mm. or four years ago, those were things that had been happening in the borderland for a long time. There's actually an internal border in the U.S. that I think people who don't live in, don't live on the border aren't aware of, but about 50 miles inland on any road, you have to go through a, an internal checkpoint uh, mm. where where um, Customs and Border Patrol are, are looking for contraband or they're looking for, yeah, various things. Um, so I can't leave the city of El Paso without going through a, a checkpoint either to the north or to the west or, or to the east. So, um, and it's wow. the same in Laredo, it's the same in, in all of these uh, cities on the border. So uh, it's, it, is an, it is like this zone of exception or of experimentation here too. Um, so, you, okay, let me, yeah. for, for me <laughs> and the rest of my audience, let me, that, that we'll hear this in a matter of moments if we both play our cards right. Um, so for me, so there's an actual border, right? Mm -hmm. There's an actual border. And then there's a separate situation that functions as a border beyond that. Yeah. It's a checkpoint. Uh, it's yeah. So, so there's crossing the international border in which you would show your passport and, Uh you know, your vehicle might be subject to uh, search, but then about 50 miles inland, there's the second checkpoint. And usually they simply ask if you're a U.S. citizen and then wave you through. But if they have some reason to, um, you know, if they have some suspicion, then they have the right to pull you over and, and search your vehicle and, you know, have you show whatever documentation you need to show to demonstrate citizenship or a legal residency right to be here. So, um, so yeah, it, it is, uh, it is two separate things. It's a lot less formal than the actual international boundary, but you know, it's, Mm. you know, I'm sure it's, uh, it's something that causes anxiety among among people who have to pass through it. Among Yeah. People that it would cause anxiety for. Um, obviously, I mean, I don't know. Are you, are you from that part of the world? Um, no, I moved here uh, three years ago um, from, so I've, I've lived in Virginia. I'm from right. California. So I didn't grow up on the borderland. My first borderland experience actually was in Slovakia. And that's how this whole thing started. Okay. Uh, I taught English at a Slovak high school on the border with Czech Republic and Poland. And um, back then they were in the European Union, but there was still international uh, borders that you had to go through. 
and uh, just the experience of living in a border town and and um, having to deal with some of the difficulties of living in a border town, but also the opportunities that come with living in a border town, right? So like uh, you could take advantage of uh, like exchange rates and you could get cheaper groceries in the Czech Republic. You could get cheaper clothing in Poland. So you could kind of make the rounds between various countries and um, yeah. to do your shopping. Um, and I thought that was a really unique experience, but also the hassle of, of always carrying your um, identification documents with you and being asked for them at any given moment. Mm -hmm. um, these were things that got me sort of interested in the borderland experience. And um, in particular, this idea of, of sh borders that shift. So you become a citizen of a new country mm -hmm. through, you know, not through moving, but because the borders move around you. Mm -hmm. um, and I guess I, you know, I thought about that because I lived in Slovakia in 2005 and Slovakia became an independent country in 1993. Mm. So that was a 12-year-old border and it had, you know, a major infrastructure as as any border would. And it was pretty obvious that that border was going to be dismantled in a matter of of a year or two with uh, sort of new regulations on uh, the Schengen zone in the European Union. So it was interesting to me that you would build up this border infrastructure, have people go through it for 12 years, and then kind of get rid of it. Hmm. Uh, and so, yeah, I, that's all sort of what got me thinking about the importance of borders and the experience, everyday uh, experience of living in a borderland when borders sort of make moves around you. Yeah. And I mean, like in Europe, I mean, I guess also like in Mexico and the border region of Mexico and the U.S. and parts of the border region between the U.S. and Canada, it's like the town or whatever can be there longer than the border or absolutely what have what have you and yeah right. yeah I mean there was border shifts in the in the U.S. Southwest of course too right uh, this uh, was Mexican national space until the mid nineteenth century. I so, actually yeah. read an article. I don't even remember when it was, but I read an article about there was a town, there was an American town, a U.S. town. I don't even remember where the town was. And, but the town learned that it was, number one, on the other side. Of, it woke up on the other side of the Mexican border all of a sudden. And also, like, the wall, like the, the wall that Donald Trump wanted to build was somewhere. It was like it would cut through the town, basically. And they were not happy about that. Yeah, there's all kinds of really yeah. weird things that have, have occurred historically and are occurring in the present in terms of like, mm. uh, yeah, the physical boundary between states. Mm. So, um, you know, the Rio Grande, the river is the border here between the United States and Mexico, but the the trajectory of the border has shifted over time. So, yeah, you know, substantially. Yeah. So where the border, yeah. where the river flows today is not where the river flowed when this border was negotiated originally. Mm. So, you know, what do you do about that? Uh, 
Then you've got these crowdsourced walls, actually just only a few miles from here in Sunland Park, New Mexico, is the place where that crowdsourced border wall was built. And it's on private property, um, but it's not clear that it's actually the international boundary or not. And it's, um, mm. you know, it's more or less an eyesore. I'm not sure what else, what other purpose it's serving at the moment. Yeah. Um, but there's all, all kinds of interesting things about borders and environment. Um, so a lot of uh, scientists have looked at like migratory routes of animals and how those have been affected by mm. these border walls and things like that. Um, and of course, some of them, some of these areas of the Southwest United States are sacred spaces for indigenous peoples. And now it's been, you know, now there's these plans to put a border wall like right in the middle of, of the sacred space. So there's a lot, it's much more complicated than let's just put up a barrier between these two countries. Mm -hmm. uh, there's all kinds of environmental reasons why uh, it doesn't necessarily work uh, and why the populations who live here don't want it. <laughs> yeah. Let me ask. Um, okay. I have an international audience and I myself, I mean, okay, I know El Paso is in the far west of Texas, right? Mm -hmm. um, I think it's in that little corner of like, it's right up against Mexico. Is that correct? That's right. Yeah, it borders New Mexico and Mexico. Um, mm -hmm. it, the closest town to El Paso is Las Cruces, New Mexico, then Albuquerque. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, we're like 10, 11 hours from Dallas, 12 hours from Houston. We're closer to Los Angeles than we are to Houston. So we are about, we are literally as far west as you can get. The border of the city is more or less the border of the state. Jesus. Huh. And right across the border in Mexico is the city of, of Juarez, oh. uh, which is a city of almost 2 million people. So uh, it's a, this is a major metropolitan area. Um, that's, of course, bifurcated by an international boundary. Yeah. Um, but the student population at, at UTEP, at my university, for example, a, a fair percentage of them actually live in Juarez, and they cross international boundary to come to school here. So um, we are quite an international city, uh, despite, I would say, the, the difficulties of, of crossing the border on a regular basis, you know, just in terms of uh, the time that it takes and, um, yeah. you know, the effort and things like that. Yeah. Huh. That's so Juarez is actually the, the big, and if this were all one Metro, Juarez would be like the, this, the, I guess the, the city, like, the big city. Yeah. 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 yeah, yeah. Absolutely. Okay. okay. Yeah. I think, um, yeah. I mean, it, Juarez because of NAFTA basically, Juarez is a major, major industrial center. Okay. Um, with a very large, I mean, historically it's had always a bigger population than El Paso, but um, economic opportunities that have come with like various mm -hmm. free trade agreements and things have also made it into this, uh, this really important industrial center for Mexico and manufacturing center for Mexico. Okay. All right. Um, Hmm. Wow. So, okay. So as far as 
what you actually study, though. Mm-hmm. Um, so what was, after the war, what was, after, there I go again. <laughs> I'm sure some scholar in the future is going to listen to this. And he was referring to World War II as the war. Yeah. <laughs> Way after it was gone. Oh, that's so interesting. All right, so after World War II, what was daily life would have been like for, I guess, the average person in those borderlands? So the borderland was liberated by the Soviet Red Army. Um, The city of Kosice, for example, was liberated in January of 1945. Mm. And very soon thereafter, Hungary signed an armistice in which it agreed to give back all of the territory it had acquired since 1938 which meant that the borderland was going to become part of Czechoslovakia again. Uh, So um, as part of the sort of post-war Czechoslovak government program, which is actually called the Košice program because it was announced in the city of Košice, uh, there was a campaign to uh, strip German and Hungarian uh, speakers of citizenship Mm. Uh, as uh, sort of, and to promote this idea of collective guilt for the dismemberment of the country in 1938 and 1939. And of course, uh, they were much more successful in their efforts to expel the German population. Uh, There was about 3 million Germans in Czechoslovakia um, prior uh, prior to these efforts to expel them. And as as part of the Potsdam Agreement after uh, after World War II, mm. they were allowed to what, what they said orderly and humanely expel the German speaking population to Germany, mm. and they wanted to do something similar with the Hungarian speaking population, uh, but the Allies weren't as eager to um, see that happen, and mm. so instead, there's this idea to come up with a population exchange. Mm. There are these Slovak communities in Hungary who had been there for a long time, for hundreds of years. They had emig- they had migrated to the area when it was all part of one state. Uh, they were uh, peasant communities, so rural communities, very tied to the land. Some of them didn't speak Slovak terribly well, in fact, um, but identified as Slovak for various reasons. And so there's this this campaign to try and incentivize those people to choose to move to Czechoslovakia. So the Czechoslovak government sends these agents to Hungary uh, to to um, advertise this opportunity to move to victorious Czechoslovakia, and you would be guaranteed land, you would be or a good job, and uh, you know you could be with your uh, ethnic brethren in this new state. And the idea was that for every Slovak that they could convince to move to Czechoslovakia, they could expel one Hungarian. Mm. And uh, so this is the way that they're going to create a more ethnically homogenous Czechoslovakia. Um, It's not, it's, I would say marginally successful. I think the, it's Mm. something like 70,000 Slovaks who moved to Czechoslovakia and about 90,000 Hungarians who, who end up being expelled. But again, it's one of those things where it's, it's basically impossible to, to verify those numbers. And, um, 
And a lot of the Slovaks who sort of volunteer to move end up changing their minds as well. So it's hard for us to come up with with good numbers, but but it does occur in, you know, in an area where you've got a million people to have a population exchange of nearly 100,000, that, that is a significant percentage, of course, of the population. Um, so that's sort of the big program on, on tap for the borderlands in, in the post-war period. And, you know, I think it's motivated by the same exact factors. Again, establishing ethnic dominance, punishing a sort of um, rival ethnic community, and expropriating the wealth of of this enemy group. Do you, I mean, do you think that might have led to some of the ethnic conflicts we see, or we saw in the nineties and we see today, you know, this like that? I mean, there's low level animosity still. There is still a significant Hungarian speaking community in Slovakia. And there's, I would say, low-level animosity between the Hungarian and Slovak governments when it comes to the treatment of that minority group. Um, the way that it manifests most today is like systematic underdevelopment of Hungarian-speaking areas in Slovakia. So like, there's no roads, there's no, there's no trains. There's. I, I was actually supposed to go to Košice next week. It's been canceled because of COVID, but. Um, you know, to get to Košice, it's way easier to get to Košice from, from Budapest, from the capital of Hungary, than it is to get from Košice, from Bratislava, the capital of Slovakia, to Košice, the second largest city in Slovakia. And the reason for that is because the southern part of the state in which both those towns are in uh, is the Hungarian-speaking region and the state just didn't put any money into that part of the country. Hmm. So you can't get from point A to point B easily. You have to go north through Slovak speaking areas. So um, I, it's like a seven hour train ride or something to get from Bratislava to Košice. And it's about a three hour train ride to get from Budapest to Košice. Hmm. And it's hmm. not that much further. It's yeah. just the way that the train lines have been laid. Yeah. And that's funny how you, you see that all throughout history, like planning. Yeah. Central planning can either atrophy or strengthen regions. Um, hmm. So in closing, um, before you tell us about the title of your book and all that, and also if you could provide me a link in the description, that'd be great. Uh, in closing, is there anything else you'd like to say? I, mean, I think we've covered the the big points of the book. Uh, mm. You know, it's it's mainly an everyday history of borderlands, and um, meant to show you the ways in which borderland populations navigate attempts at state control mm. in this in this era of intense back and forth. So I've talked a lot about the sort of persecution that people endured. But I should also mention that there are increased opportunities because of these border changes. You have a, an international network among your family and friends through no fault of your own or through you know, no effort on your part, right? Just because the border moved around you. And you know, in particular for Jews, that opens up opportunities for rescue and, uh, and, and escape. 
during deportation actions. So um, I should mention that that the book also discusses the ways in which the border changes the border changes allow people to have some some greater opportunities to evade state control, even while they're under greater surveillance. Uh, so the name of the book is Borders on the Move, Territorial Change and Ethnic Cleansing in the Hungarian-Slovak Borderlands, 1938 to 1948. And that was published in 2020 by uh, University of Rochester Press. Mm-hmm. And then my next project, which I'm working on now, is um, a study of the 1992 Barcelona Olympics Hmm. And the ways in which um, Eastern European, like post-communist countries, used those Olympic Games to try to reintegrate with the West. Yeah, yeah, that's um. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I I vaguely remember some of that, and I actually have a a personal story about that that I'm happy. Oh to yeah. Share. Well, I'm happy to share it off air, but cool. <laughs> yeah, he's not here with us, so I don't want to drag him into it unnecessarily. Got uh, it. <laughs> but, um, thank you, thank you, Leslie, uh, very much. Thank All you, right, Ben. Everybody, uh, this has been Ben Kitchings of the History Voyager, um, and as always, I'm having a good day, and I hope you are too, Leslie. If you'll hang on the line while this thing downloads. Mm-hmm.